You were never out of the fight. You were created for a time such as this. And you are now preparing to be sent into battle. God is calling you to be his disciple, to be formed in virtue and holiness. He has appointed you as an ambassador of his kingdom. To go and represent him to his people. And he's enlisted you as a soldier of Christ. To be sent out to fight for the good in this world. You were not made to make excuses. time for you to take extreme ownership for your life, for all of your life. It's time to rise up and finally be the man or woman you were created to be. Follow God. Lead others. And never surrender. It is time to begin seeking excellence. What is going on, everybody? This is your boy, Nathan Crankfield, the host and founder of the Seeking Excellence Podcast. And I'm here today joined with my homie, Christian, one of my IG homies, man. It's good to have you with me today, bro. How are you? It's great to be here. Uh, I'm doing much better now that I'm on the podcast with you. Awesome, dude. Awesome. <laughs> We're excited. Yeah, super excited to share some of your story. I know before we started, you said that there was a lot of similarities in our background and story and stuff. So excited to dive into some of that stuff. And so I think it'd be a great place to start. It's just kind of a little introduction of who you are, what you do, where you're from, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I was born and raised in uh, Fort Lee, New Jersey. Well, I was born in Englewood, New Jersey, but raised, I uh, grew up in Fort Lee, New Jersey, which is just outside New York City. So if anybody's familiar with the George Washington Bridge, I'm the town on the New Jersey side. Um, I was actually baptized Catholic uh, when I was an infant. And at about 11 or 12 years old, my parents left the Catholic church for a multitude of reasons, which we can get into if you'd like. But um, I followed them out. I was 12 years old. I didn't really know much on my own. I wasn't at that point where I was asking my own questions, making my faith my own, really. So I followed them out. And then I came to Liberty University, actually, a Protestant university, great school nonetheless, but a Protestant university, and actually reverted to the Catholic faith in my sophomore year at Liberty University. So I work here at Liberty now. I'm an administrator. For the, yeah, I'm an administrator for the Standing for Freedom Center, which is a political engagement, a cultural engagement center, which actually strives to uh, promote the biblical reasons behind the political views that we hold. So um, it's sometimes a little bit of a dance to do it as a Catholic and uh, working amongst a bunch of Protestants. But uh, and this is something I'm sure we're going to get into during our talk that there's so much room for agreement between Protestants and Catholics when it comes to the cultural application and the political application of our faith yes. uh, that uh, we don't, we don't have to worry about the division so much yet, maybe in like 50, 60 years, if we can recover from where we are right now, right. Yeah. Uh, we can work about some of those smaller things, but we can't even agree on whether or not there's such a thing as man and woman. So until right. we get over some of those humps, it's actually pretty easy to work with it. But that, that's what I'm up to now. Um, I came to Virginia five, six years ago now in 2017 um, to start my classes here at Liberty. And I got hired as a sophomore. <clears throat> and now I'm, I've been at the Freedom Center for two years. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. man. Yeah, pretty crazy to think that uh, your family left the church almost the same age that I joined the church. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty interesting, man. And so did you go, were you Catholic school at all? Or were you public school? And, no, and I was actually in public school all the way through high school. And then when okay. I got to high school, I want to say seventh grade, 
my mother was like, Hey, uh, what, what would you think about us homeschooling? And I remember thinking to myself, you're crazy. I actually told her, I was like, mom, that's a crazy suggestion. I do not want to homeschool. Uh, I want to have my friends. I want to be in the school system, all this stuff. Uh, full confession. The reason I wanted to stay was because I wouldn't be around as many girls. So yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to leave the public school, but uh, I let my reason win out on that one. And I decided to actually homeschool throughout high school. And I tell everybody that was the best educational decision that I could have ever made uh, because we see where schools are now. They were already, I mean, this wasn't that long ago. I'm 23 years old. Um, they were already really bad when I was in them and right. the value of the education that we were getting. And I didn't grow up in a bad area that the schools are pretty good. Um, it just was not what you want your kids being taught. Right. I was coming home with permission slips, uh, requesting permission for my parents to watch R rated movies in school, wow. uh, very sexually perverse movies. And I remember back then I was like, why is it such a big deal to you guys? Now I understand exactly why it was such a big deal for them. And they wanted to pull me out of that system, but I got to take Latin classes and logic classes and comparative worldview classes that you would have never, ever gotten in the public school system. It was a total win for my education. Um, yeah. And I didn't lose an ounce of my social life either, which that's is dope. a myth of homeschooling. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's amazing. And did you have a lot of siblings and stuff growing up? I'm the oldest of four. So okay. I was I was the one, my mom calls me the guinea pig. Like all the mistakes, trials and errors <laughs> happened with me first. And then they got it, like they, she got to correct it with them. So sure. they'll all end up be they'll all end up being smarter, wiser, and better than me. But uh, I think my mom did a pretty good job. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, man, you're you're at a good spot, you know, for the for if you're the worst, I think they're doing all right. You know, yeah, we'll be okay. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So tell me more about that, man. So how did you go? I mean, I know Liberty, I always call Liberty like the Franciscan of the Protestant world, you know, yeah. like it is, it is Protestant to its core and obviously a lot of great values. And it's definitely better than going to like Arizona state, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, as far as like helping to, to build your faith, but I'm really curious. Yeah. As to how you came back to Catholicism through all of that. Oh my gosh. This is one of my favorite things to talk about. So I actually preface it by saying my conversion and I'll elaborate. So people don't think this is a, uh, uh, I'm, I'm not sure what the right word to use is, but I always tell people my conversion was political and immediately people are like, wait, you converted for political purposes. Let me explain. Um, and this is actually where you and I have some similarity when I heard about your whole conversion process. Yeah. Um, it was actually, uh, and you, you actually had Anna on the podcast, Anna Lewis. She's my girlfriend. Yeah. So uh, it was actually when I was still friends with her, I wasn't interested in her for a dating relationship or anything like that. Uh, our first serious conversation with each other where I was like, wow, okay. She's actually really smart. Like we could be friends. Yeah. Uh, she asked me about my faith life and I was pretty anti-Catholic. So I start for like a good 20, 30 minutes, just telling her about my faith life and why we left the Catholic church because they worship Mary and because they pray mm. to the saints and all, I mean, your usual, like, this is what yeah, they the shoot at you. Yeah. <laughs> that was me. So I get through all of this and then she you didn't just, come up with anything new. No, nothing new. I just I, same rap sheet. Same this is all the stuff. Yeah, they've been hitting for a while. None of it caught her by surprise. So I right, finish, yeah. and she's just looking at me like, "Did she didn't get up and leave?" Which was impressive to me. But she starts with, "So I'm Catholic," and I was like, "Oh, oh, I stepped in it. Like I, I totally insulted your entire she's dogged you, yeah, for yeah. 10 minutes. Yeah. But I, that got me so curious because I had already seen her faith life, and I'm like, "She's legit. Like she actually walks the walk." Right. So I got me inquiring, like about these Catholic beliefs. How are you such a good Christian if you're a Catholic, you know? Yeah. And uh, as, yeah, as time went on, 
uh, I started developing an attraction to her too. So now I was like, wait, I kind of like you too. She'd never dated anybody before. So we started dating um, and I was still a Protestant. She was still a Catholic. And I told her, I was like, I will never convert for you under any circumstances. It actually got to the point where like almost nightly, we were going back and forth on different issues, be it the Eucharist, church wow. authority, apostolic succession, solo scriptura, like all these things. We were back and forth, back and forth. Yeah. And we'd have to like put pause on the conversation and say, okay, we'll come back tomorrow. We'll try this again. We yeah. got to go back to our doors. <laughs> so um, and I, but I told her, I was like, I'll never convert for you. I was consulting with my parents back in New Jersey. I was talking to pastors back in New Jersey, like, hey, this is what I'm reading about this. And none of the answers that they came back with sufficed. Uh, they, they never had an answer that actually answered their objection to the Catholic faith. On the contrary, right. I could always find a Catholic response that was thorough, logical, reasonable rooted to the Protestant objection, rooted in history, yep. tradition, and scripture. That was That's the key one. There was yep. just about everything you could find a very close, if not outright explicit reference to it in scripture. And so time, as time went on, eventually it got to the point where I told her, I was like, I'm not talking to you about the faith at all. The only issue we talked about was the pro-life issue because we were already completely agreement in agreement with that one. The rest, I did not want to talk to her about it because I didn't want to convert for a girl. Right. So I say, <laughs> uh, I say my conversion was political because I, I went first for the rock. I said, if I can take down that Jesus left his authority on this rock of Peter, then nothing else matters because the rock on which he said he built the church wasn't actually the rock that he said he would right. build his church on. So I tried to go for that. And then I found a guy named Steve Ray. So and it's Steve Christian Ray, versus St. Peter at this point. Oh my goodness. A, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Quite the mismatch. <laughs> uh -huh. <laughs> I'm no match. I was no match at all, but uh, I find Steve Ray and he had this incredible, I listened to several debates. I would listen to guys like Trent Horn, Scott Hahn, Steve Ray, Dr. Taylor Marshall, like yep. a lot of the same guys that you the heavy hitters. To. Yep. Yep. I'd listen to long form debates about them debating uh, a Protestant on different issues of baptism and salvation and uh, scripture alone, all these different things. But Steve Ray had one in particular. It's on YouTube. And I highly recommend everybody, even if you're already Catholic, to go watch it because it strengthens your uh, faith and your reasoning behind it. That was always big for me. It's got to make sense. It's got to be logical. It's got to be reasonable. Uh, it's, uh, I, I might botch the title here, but you can search this. It'll come up. It was Peter, the chair, the keys and the rock. And he walks you through the old Testament parallels to the new Testament parallels of giving the keys to the kingdom to somebody chair of Moses, chair of Peter. And the one that really yeah. got me was he mentions name changes in scripture. It's mm. like when in scripture, does God change somebody's name for no reason? Every time there's a name change, the name changes specifically to fulfill a purpose that God had for them. Abram right. to Abraham, it was to it was to say, you know, I you're going to be the father of nations. So that's what I changed your name to. Yeah, Peter's name was not Peter; it was Simon. Mm. So why would he change Peter's name or Simon's name to Peter, which means rock, to then? which is what Protestants say, refer to himself when he was saying rock. You are Peter and on this rock, meaning Christ. It's like, wait a second, there's a disconnect there. He says, you are Peter. He's talking to Peter. And he says, and on this rock, the very same name that he gave him, he wasn't referring to himself. He was actually referring to Peter that on that rock, he was going to build his church. And there's yeah. other, other parallels that Steve Ray talks about as well. It's like an hour and change lecture. And I was like, man, that was the breaking point for the rock. I was like, okay. 
there's some legitimacy here. Oh my goodness. What if Jesus did build his church on Peter? And then it was, okay, well, maybe there was a special, and a lot of Protestants will say this too, that the apostolic authority ends after the 12 apostles were gone. It never never continued. But then we have evidences in scripture that Judas killed himself. They had to replace him. And the apostles laid hands on their successor and gave to him all of the same authorities that That Jesus Jesus had given them. them. (laughs) So right in scripture, you have your first example of apostolic succession. And the Catholic Church, when you go through their history, has a lineage, unbreakable lineage of the order of the popes and what you read in scripture, do not forsake the laying of hands on one another. They've laid hands on their successors all throughout the years in an unbroken historical chain, passing on the same authority that Jesus gave to Peter and his apostles. Whatsoever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And whosoever sins you retain will be retained. Whosoever sins you forgive will be forgiven. And this has continued in an unbreakable historical chain. So the rock was gone. Apostolic succession was gone. And my last one was the Eucharist. Uh, I was like, I remember I was, I called Anna one day. I had, I was counseling with different people and I said, okay, I think I could be Orthodox. I just can't, I just can't, I can't go all the way. I'm close. It's just like a pride thing. It was a pride thing. I'm like, I'm not going to go all the way. Yeah. But then. That's the really theology funny. of the Eucharist, it actually was, it's ironic. It was uh, our campus pastor's sister. She posted something on Instagram and it was uh, of the Eucharist. And she wrote in her caption was like, how blessed are we to be able to consume your body? And I was like, she Catholic. So I called her and I was like, I need to come over. I need to talk to you. And I went over and I spent like two hours at her house. She wasn't Catholic, but she believed in the Eucharist. And I remember she was like, I looked at her as like, and she is, she's one of the most kind, genuine hearted people ever. And I didn't like, she would never have pride in the way of why she believes something. So I wanted to hear it from somebody who was very genuine. And she said that. And I remember I was like, that softened me a little bit. I was like, okay, I trust her. That's reasonable. But what really did it for me with the Eucharist was John six. I read through yeah. it and I kept telling myself, I'm like, this is just a metaphor. It's just a metaphor. It's just a metaphor. <laughs> yeah. And I tell people, I say, look, I'll concede to you that first three quarters, maybe you can say it's just a metaphor, but then you get to the bottom portion of John chapter six, where the people start to murmur and Jesus in all the other parables, when he was done explaining the parable to the public, in this case, to the disciples, which there were more than 12 of until after this point, um, he would explain to them and say, for them, it is not yet time to, to understand, but to you. And mm-hmm. he'd explain to them what he meant by the parable. This time, the people murmur. Jesus inquires about the murmuring. They object to his teaching. He doubles down on his teaching. Many of them walk away. The only ones that stay are the 12. And then he turns to them. And he doesn't even clarify it to them. He's, what, what about you? Are you going to leave too? And Peter's the one who speaks. Up, says, no, you, you, have, you, you have the truth. You're the Christ. Who, how are we going to walk away from you? So you can get away with saying it's a metaphor all the way until that last part where he's telling them, lest you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And he let people walk away, didn't call them back, didn't clarify anything about it. He meant what he said. And from there was what uh, cut down from the multitude of disciples that he had down to the 12 that remained. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. And then (laughs) wrapping it all up. The political part was I'm very conservative. I am always like I've, I've always been conservative. If anything, I've become more conservative over time. 
And whenever I hear of these laws that are exacerbating the power of the federal government or abusing regulatory power or authority from a governor or the president, I'm always upset by it because it's diverting from what this country was founded on. I always want to go back to the Constitution. Like, what was the government supposed to function like? What were our founding principles? I dive into history and our nation's traditions to determine how we should affect policy now. Right. Yep. And I'm thinking to myself, if I'm willing to put that much importance on getting my country's history and politics right by going back to the founders and what they meant when they wrote our founding documents, how much more important is it for me to do that when it comes to my eternity in my Christian faith? And so it was actually the politics that was the last straw <laughs> that so was funny. like, wait a second, I need to be Catholic. Yeah. If I, I got the rock, I got uh, apostolic succession, apostolic succession, I got the Eucharist, scripture fell too, which is another one we can get into on why soul scripture it's just doesn't work. Uh, and then it was the politics where I was like, oh my goodness, I'm treating my faith like I can live in the most recent 500 years of it from yeah. Martin Luther. And I'm ignoring all the 1500 that came before. I'm ignoring all of these historical documents that were written by men who were much wiser and much closer to Christ's time than Martin Luther was. Yep. Yet I'm ignoring all of it. And after that, it was, you couldn't stop me. I signed up for RCIA the very first moment that my all in. Uh, Monsignor signed, uh, <laughs> announced it. And that was it. You, you could not, you can't, you would never get me to turn back. That's so funny, man. Mm -hmm. I think you just summed up uh, my like, you know, two hours of why am I Catholic into, into talk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I told you there was a lot of similarities. I was listening to it. I'm like, this is very similar. Yeah. Yeah. Which is so interesting too, because it's interesting to hear yours was much more of like, you lived it out. Like you lived mm -hmm. out, like searching that and actually disagreed with those things as where mine was more of a, a Catholic bias of, I had emotionally kind of converted as a, you know, a teenager, a young teenager. And then I was like, as a, as a young adult was like, well, if I'm going to be Catholic, I got to figure out why. And that's kind of what I boiled it down to is almost those exact yeah. same points of like, what are my reasons, you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. And that was really, I think what did it for me was exactly those things. But I love what you hit on there. Uh, the one that drives me crazy so much is the, um, yeah, the Eucharist of how you can deny yeah. that he, you know, hits that so hard and constantly. I think the same thing with Holy Scripture. There's just so many and then even, yeah, you're, the way you describe that, I think it's even generous to say that most Protestants are doing the last 500 years and ignoring 1500 years. I'm like, most yeah. of you guys are looking at like Stephen Furtick, you know, um, last who, 15 who, years. Yeah. 15 years. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. that's like the Obama administration on. I, that's always my analogy. You know, I'm like, if you yeah. went from the Trump administration on and you like went from, okay, I know like the founding fathers and now I jump ahead to like the Obama, you know, 2012 yeah. on. And skip everything in the middle. Don't learn anything from what happened in the yeah. middle area there. None yeah. of that matters. And, and so importantly, too, like we see right away in the New Testament after Jesus' ascension, you have the Council of Jerusalem where they're trying to determine do the Gentiles need to be circumcised to be a part of the covenant. And that's a that's a huge issue that they had to figure out. And that was very shortly after Christ. Like he was no longer there to specifically tell them this, not this, this, not this. It was like the, the first documented instance that we have of them trying to figure out, okay, what's the teaching on this? Right. And you look at how many more of those things happened before the Obama administration time, you know, like the last 15 yep. years that you're just choosing 
not to listen to. Like these guys were, that was a big question. It, before, if you weren't circumcised, you weren't part of the Jewish covenant. Now it was like, okay, if we get this wrong, is that going to cost them their eternity if, if they're not circumcised? That's a big deal to have to fit, to have to mm-hmm. uh, clarify. And we see them come together as the, as the apostles and determine this is what the teaching is. How many more times did that happen before we got to Martin Luther, before we got to Calvin, before we got to right. Furtick? That you're just ignoring all these guys who were one after the other in a non in an unbreaking uh, genealogy under the authority of the church that Christ left behind, clarifying and declaring all of those teachings, and you just choose to ignore it. It boggles my mind. Boggles my mind. And and but when it when it clicked for me that like I said you couldn't there's yeah. nothing you could do to stop me. You saw the truth and I the truth that. set me free, man. It was like open range. I'm out, I'm going. I'm, I'm Catholic. <laughs> yeah. It's so awesome, man. Yeah. And it's so funny that Anna was the the beginning. We had a great talk. It was, yes, uh, she was. Yeah. I encourage people to go back and check out that episode. I think it's one of the longest episodes we've ever done. Uh, me and Anna, Lewis. <laughs> Anna freaking Lewis, baby. Yes. We talked about, uh, that's my contact name on the phone for her. Too. That's, that's awesome. I think mine too. <laughs> she was like, uh, yeah, I love that. When I saw that on Instagram, it's like her name. Um, uh-huh. she, we talked about the uh, biggest uh, objections to like the pro-life movement and like kind of mm. dismantled each one. I think we did like five. Yeah. So it was really, really good. Dude. The other thing uh, that you hit on too, was just kind of the um, yeah, just kind of you like asking the questions at the beginning and just being willing to like go deeper into that. Cause I, I'm always amazed too at how often so many Protestant friends and things like that are not willing to, ask those questions, especially of people in authority, because mm-hmm. I'm like that, that's one of the biggest things for me. I think that is, is a huge selling point for Catholicism is there's always answers. Like you can, yeah. you can't as a Protestant, especially a Protestant that goes to some like neighborhood church that was founded by some dude 10 years ago, you know, and is mm-hmm. out of a high school gym. You can't tell me that you feel like that dude has all the answers to everything. And to say, I think it's so foolish and such like an easy blanket, like uh, kind of like an easy cop out to be like, well, just what does the Bible say? And it's like the Bible mm-hmm. leaves out a lot of topics. You know, the Bible doesn't say anything about contraception. The Bible doesn't yeah. say, I mean, and maybe you could like interpret it a certain way and like the catechism will root it back to certain scripture. But it's like there's so many ways. It, there's no way that the Bible is that clear if so many people who simply have the Bible interpret it into 15 different things. Thousands and thousands of different ways. No, absolutely. That was <laughs> you know that was I mean? one of the biggest things for me was because I, I was of that same mindset. No, sola scriptura. The Bible is the only thing that you need yep. and you can get everything from that. But then you look at, okay, what does that look like in application? It looks mm. like every single church, every denomination that we have, and there's We've thousands of them now. Yep. They're being their own church. They are their own popes. That's essentially yeah. what Luther did. He said, look, you take this book, you interpret, the Holy Spirit will lead you, and whatever he tells you, that we see the chaos Relative. that that has led to. Yeah. Is that what God in Scripture explicitly talks about? No. Christ's prayers were for unity. God is a God of order. Those are explicit themes in sacred Scripture. Yet, yeah. When it comes to its application, you're completely there, there's nothing in there that contradicts or, or bothers you about the fact that in one town you have 30 different kinds of Christian churches that are all teaching different theology. Is that consistent with the Christ that we read about in scripture? No, it's not. He created one church. He wanted unity among his body. And what we have today is most certainly not unity. So at best, the question you have to ask yourself is, 
which church is it? But it can't be all of them. It's impossible. Yeah, exactly. I love it, man. So that's great. So now you're now you're a diehard Catholic. You know, it's great to have you All back the on the team. Uh, <laughs> great to have you back for sure. And so I guess, I mean, if that started in college, yeah, you've been back, what, for like three years? I'm about to hit two years. Right. Oh, that's wow. it. Yeah, I'm about to hit my second year this Easter because I was the uh, You've technically been uh, Catholic longer. COVID than conversion. Yeah, technically. Yeah. <laughs> technically. I was what I call the COVID conversion before. group. So like we couldn't because of the regulations, we couldn't actually be confirmed according to the church liturgical calendar. We had to wait because we, we were delayed by our state regulations of how many people could gather and yeah, all the stuff. Course. And finally, our Monsignor was like, I'm done waiting. And so uh, the parish that I reverted at is St. Thomas More in Lynchburg, Virginia. And so uh, I forget how many weeks after it was the feast day of St. Thomas More. And he's like, I'm done. We're doing it. We can't keep delaying this anymore. We're, we're going to complete our confirmations and those who needed to be baptized, be baptized, all that. So I was that I was the COVID conversion class. So mine was that's a little awesome. off time, but <laughs> yeah, that's cool. St. Thomas More is the man. I love yeah, that. And now, love y'all, now y'all out there balling with Yunkin, though. So now uh, probably do. <laughs> we should be in much better hands now in Virginia. He had me worried in the beginning because oh, really? I knew he wasn't a conservative's conservative. His lieutenant governor is so much more conservative. If, if uh, Lieutenant yeah. Governor Sears was the governor, I'd feel so confident. Uh, what helped him a lot and what gave me a little more confidence was when Senator Cruz endorsed him. When Senator Cruz endorsed him, I was like, okay, I hope that you're able to push him more conservative because I do remember uh, shortly, either shortly before the election or just after somebody asked him, are you going to do anything about local COVID mandates? And he said, no, I'm not going to get involved in the local level. And at that point it was like, okay, so you're going to let everybody get screwed at the local level, losing their jobs, dealing with vaccine mandates, and you're just going to sit in the governor's mansion and be like, well, I can't do anything about that. That's that was one of the moments when I was like, ah, he's really going to end up being like a, a moderate one of these mushes rather than like a mm. governor Ron DeSantis, which is what we want out of them. Yeah. But since then, he has shifted a little bit more conservative to Stepped say, no, 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 no. Bit. Yep. We're going to get in the way of that. We're not going to allow mandates. We're going to make sure people can keep their jobs. So it's looking up. And I think he's going to do a good job if he keeps on this track. That's awesome, man. And so great. So you're, you're a diehard Catholic. You're back in the game. And. Yeah. So what is your, so obviously you, you have a political job, so you're really mm-hmm. focused. You're, you're neck deep in the, in the politics all the time. Yeah. And how do you feel? You know, I, I, I've had some interesting conversations with people recently talking about like uh, you know, sometimes Catholics can be obsessed with politics and it's easy mm-hmm. for us to get. Um, I think, I think it's possible for sure to get your priorities out of order when it comes to politics and your faith. Uh, I also think that there's a lot of overlap in those two and you know, I think we're seeing that more and more come to light when we see somebody like Joe Biden, who's ardently mm-hmm. pro-choice and claims to be a devout Catholic. Right. But what is your kind of stance on, on, uh, yeah, how to prioritize that slash, like, how much do you think Catholics should get involved in politics and being aware of what's going on, you know, in society, culturally, things like that? Yeah, I think, unfortunately, sometimes people use that as a cop out to not be involved in politics or to be comfortable having the wrong stance on an issue in politics by just saying, oh, you're too focused on it or your priorities out of line. You can get your priorities out of line with anything. If you obsess over your favorite sport, your priorities out of line. If if that takes the place of God, it's out of line. You could do that with anything. Politics just tends to be more uncomfortable because you have to deal (laughs) with the divisions that exist because of worldview or ideological differences. So it's, it's not as 
comfortable as if you have to determine whether or not Drew Brees is a better quarterback than Peyton Manning. Like that's, that's a conversation you can have disagree and it's not a big deal, whatever. But when it comes to whether or not, I don't know, you can murder your children to the point of birth, uh, bankrupt uh, half the population for not wanting to get vaccinated. Like those have a little bit more consequence to them (laughs) and they're going to cause tensions to get a little hotter. And so it makes people uncomfortable, but I don't think you can be, a good Catholic if you're not involved to some degree. Uh, it, I'm not saying you have to be like in the weeds, like my, like somebody like myself who literally my job is to do that, but you do right. have to participate with your government. We don't have any kind of directive in scripture or in church teaching that says abdicate and don't participate. On the contrary, we have mandates to draw the world, draw from our closest sphere of influence and working out toward Christ. And some people will say it exclusivize that and say, oh, well, it's only the Great Commission. You're just supposed to be winning souls to Jesus. Yes, that's our most important role, but that's not the extent of it. Otherwise, why would the church bother doing charitable work? Why would they bother uh, building hospitals, educating people, feeding people? Like All of these things matter too. Yes, the salvation mm-hmm. of the soul is paramount and the most important, but we have a duty as believers to be involved in all these other areas and try and bring our society in close order with who Christ is. Who is the king over all of it? Christ. And if we are his servants, then who are we working for? Christ. We are working to bring things toward his order, his will, and that includes the sphere of politics. So somebody who says, oh, we're not supposed to get involved, that that is a failure of your responsibility as a Catholic, as a Protestant Christian, whatever the case might be, you are abdicating your responsibility. And in the United States, we are so beyond blessed to literally have the ability to just walk in and press what we want to happen. I want this guy. Sometimes it's ballot issues in your town or your state. I want this to pass, this not to pass. You have such a blessing of being able to determine exactly what your government does with you, an opportunity that nobody else in the history of the world has ever been given. And you're going to tell me that you don't want to participate in that? That's mm. to me, is, is asinine. You have the opportunity to actually do the most good with government, which historically is not the case and especially yeah. not to Christians. Right. And you're going to say, nah, I'm sitting it out. I'm sad. Absurd. Yeah. Absurd. It is wild, man. Yeah. I, I do think there is uh, a decent chunk of the population that just like t- likes to take it out because it is difficult to think about, you know, you have mm-hmm. to like really wrestle with so many different ideas and there's definitely a, uh, just a, a plague of intellectual laziness, I think in our mm-hmm. society and in our culture. And it's so sad to me to see like so many grown adults that have been in my life for a long time now to see them have wasted away intellectually, you know, their mind's gone. And I'm not talking, you know, 90 year olds, I'm talking 50 year olds and 60 year olds who are like, you can't legitimately like understand an idea, Mm -hmm. you know, like you like lack the intelligence, like the mental capacity to, uh, you know, formulate your own thoughts and evaluate the thoughts of other people or, you know, uh, to, to be able to take in a thought and evaluate it without accepting it yeah. and just kind of see what's good about it, what's bad about it, dissect that. And then, you know, express that, you know, your opinion back out into the world. Yeah. And it's really, really sad to watch people just kind of not be able to do that. Mm-hmm. There's a multitude of, of factors that contribute to something like that. I, uh, I forget the author's name, but 
it's in a book. I forget who the author is, but you can look this up. It's a uh, hard times create strong men, strong men oh, create yeah. good times, good times create weak men, weak men create hard times and the cycle repeats itself. Yeah. So we came out of an era uh, of a generation, what we call the greatest generation uh, of people who were strong, resolute, both the men and the women, the men were fighting at war and the women were helping to make sure that they had the equipment to fight that war. Uh, and there were, there was global conflict. There was risk of attack on our soil. Like your, like your life is on the line. That persecution brought out that fortitude, that courage, that resilience, mm-hmm. And then that generation built for my generation and your generation, a, not a pretty good life, an incredible life. When you look at all of world history, the poorest in the United States are wealthier than most in all of world history. Oh, yeah. It's hard for us, for most people to fathom that because we're so used to how we live in the United States, but we have it really, really good, which right. is why it bothers me when people don't actively participate to keep it that way. Because, yeah, I want my children and grandchildren to live just as prosperous as I get to live. And as my parents were blessed to be able to live in this country, Mm -hmm. I want them to have that same opportunity. Um, But sometimes it's hard for people to like put that into perspective and they just kind of start taking it for granted. And like I said, abdicate that responsibility. And because it's so convenient and so nice for them, they don't feel that same burden, that same urgency to learn, to know the kinds of threats that they're facing, to be to understand what they have to be looking out for, threats of secularism and socialism that are always there. The devil's been around for all of our human history. Right. He's always been trying to pry and destroy and lie and steal and cheat. And if you adopt this intellectual laziness of saying, well, like, oh, you know, governments, our government's been pretty good. You know, they, they won't uh, take our rights away. They're not going to persecute us for our religion. Open a history book. Open a history book. You're blessed to be in a time where it hasn't happened much, if at all, in the United States. We're 200 some years old. Right. <laughs> in, the, in the scheme of nations that have risen and fallen, we're babies. <laughs> yeah. That could change. You know, you've got a duty to learn, study, understand what's happened before, what's happening now and where things are leading in the future. You have a responsibility to do that so that we don't have to go through those hard times. But unfortunately, human nature is the way that it is. Laziness creeps in. We've got the technology factor that's just like, I can just click on things all day and immediate satisfaction and not actually have to do any deep critical thinking. Um, And unfortunately, if that trend continues, we will be and we are heading into a hard times. So in right. maybe a generation or two, we'll have strong men again. But right now we're in the weak men creating hard times. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think, you know, the other thing I think that kind of goes along with the uh, the laziness is I think, and I think this is a very Protestant thing that often happens too, is there can be like this American arrogance mm-hmm. where there's like, you know, not, not just lazy and thinking that it won't happen to us, but there's kind of like, I, I think there's so many Americans and oftentimes in the conservative side who think like this, like we're, we're like the modern day Israel mm. where it's like, because we've been so blessed, they look at that and they're just like, God loves us so much. Like never change. never fall. Some of these things. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like uh dog. That is not the case. You know There's I mean? only one organization, one institution, one governing body that is guaranteed never to right. fall. And that's the Catholic church. Yeah. And it's not and everything else. It's not like serious suffering, no persecution. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And I think people, I think, I guess it's easy to assume that if you don't have the church, then you make America that thing, you know, you might I mean? replace it. Yeah. You yeah, absolutely especially can. in the, like, um, 
you know, the prosperity gospel kind of churches and things like that. I feel like they often view America as like this untouchable force. But right. I think I think you have an interesting point there. And I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this because I, I get into the like whose fault is this, you know, uh, mm-hmm. kind of battle oftentimes. And I kind of I, I think I might place a little bit earlier than you do. Like, I actually think that the weak men that created the bad times were the generation directly after. Like, I, I often mm-hmm. view the baby boomers like as the people who ruined kind of everything. I think yeah. both like the we've seen a decline in the church and a decline in American values. Uh, since the 1960s, you know, and the yeah. boomers were kind of born like from World War II up through like the to the 70s, I think is kind of their range. Yeah. And I just look at so many people from that generation. And, and I think it's really funny because back in the day, bro, and you probably remember this. And I'm, I say back in the day, I mean, like five years ago, right? Like back when <laughs> yeah. men, men were men and women were women. Mm-hmm. Um, and many other things were true. Still, like you, we had all these jokes about like boomers, you know, like even like a few years before the OK Boomer stuff. Yeah. Like boomers were like the hard nose, you know, like, you know, work with your hands. Like, how do you not know how to change your tire? Like that kind of stuff. And millennials were supposed to be like the soft ones. Right. And I've come to learn really since I started working at Dynamic Catholic, because I was a parish consultant. Okay. And I had 10 parishes, five in Austin, Texas, five in Kansas city. And I was mind blown dude at how frequently the actual like cancers within the parish were not the young people. It wasn't the young mm, people who were pushing. Yeah, 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 yeah. It wasn't the young people who were mad that there wasn't same sex marriages happening in their parish. It wasn't mm-hmm. the young people who wanted them to, you know, be more uh, lenient on, on abortion. It was the old people. Yeah. It's us. It's the millennials who are the ones that are fighting for this stuff. How yeah. many people, I mean, I, I can name many more conservative voices, especially in the Christian, even just general Christians, but even on the Catholic side that speak out that are 30 and under than I can that are 30 to 70. You're completely correct. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. I'm like, so to me, I'm like, I, I think we're kind of in that time. I'm, I'm hoping maybe I'm just optimistic about our generation that we're coming into that. Like good men. I think we're going to start coming out in the next 30 years because I think we're already in, I think we're, we're on the cusp of the bad time that we're created by mm. the bad men. I think it's hard to say like, how long do those phases go? You know? Cause right, so right, right. There's always like, some overlap. Yeah. It's not like a specific 10 year period each time, mm-hmm. but I do think, you know, you saw the sexual revolution, yeah. Uh, you know, no fault divorce that led to same sex marriage that led to all kinds of other, uh, you know, abortion getting legalized in the seventies in that time period. Um, obviously there's a whole debate and I don't want to make this a Vatican two debate and I'm not like super <laughs> anti Vatican two, but I think that undoubtedly the spirit of Vatican two mm-hmm. compared to the, you know, the letter of the law that came in Vatican two, the spirit of Vatican two has obviously been detrimental in, in a myriad of ways. You know what I mean? We've seen 100%. nothing improve since it happened. Um, And I think a lot of that is sad because I think if they had adhered to the actual writings of Vatican II, we wouldn't be in the situation that we're in right now, but they didn't for whatever reason. And we had the spirit of Vatican II that, you know, destroyed the church, I think in so many ways. Yeah. Um, Well, not destroyed it because the church will never be destroyed, but it has set us back or, you know, has um, been an assault from within. Big time. Uh, But yeah, what are your thoughts on that? As far as, I I mean, I'd have to agree with, I'd have to agree with your assessment um, because, and I, I, I was actually talking about this with some friends last night. We were doing a, a worldview discussion on campus and um, we were talking about that. Like what, what came first? Did we abandon the worldview and then the culture change or did the culture start to change? And so we started abandoning the worldview. Right. And before the culture can change, the worldview has to change. So it was actually an abandonment of what we knew to be true, right, good, and beautiful that then led to the culture following suit. Right. And, but the why behind that, I don't know if I, I certainly can't say for certain, especially because yeah. I'm only 23 years old. So this stuff was happening 
before I was even born. <laughs> uh, but if I had to pinpoint something based on, cause you're right. It's a lot of times like the Novus Ordo parishes that are abusing the liturgy, the congregations are like 65 plus young people aren't going there. Right. Young people are going to the Novus Ordo parishes that are being reverent to the Latin masses, especially. Yeah. Or we, they just don't loading go. those up or they just, yeah. Yeah. But, but seldom you're right. you see young people at the, you know, very liberal unorthodox Novus Ordo. hundred percent. A hundred percent. You can count me as one of them. Unfortunately in Lynchburg, we don't have, it's a very Protestant area. We don't have any Latin masses Not a lot of uh, within an hour <laughs> and change. Yeah. First Latin mass parish from where I'm at is an hour, 40 minutes away. The next one's two hours in the opposite direction which we drive to some Sundays just to get reverence and yeah. explicit Catholicism, like yeah. unapologetic Catholicism. But absolutely. Uh, if I had to pinpoint a why it was for the sake of niceness. And I'll yeah. elaborate what I mean by that. You had people who have always objected to what Christianity teaches uh, in general. You know, you have people say, oh, why aren't conservatives more compassionate? I was listening to one of your podcasts and I love the phrase that you used and I've heard it many times before. You don't have a, if you're not a liberal uh, when you're young, you don't have a heart. And if you're not a, a conservative when you're older, you don't have a brain. Yeah, <laughs> You've always had that appeal to emotion that m- paints people who are trying to conserve what is good, right, true, and beautiful as mean because you are trying to make society or you're keeping society from doing whatever it wants. And so you're viewed as harsh, cruel, mean for saying, no, this is a limit that we have to keep in place when the human will left to our sinful nature wants to just satisfy the flesh. And uh, this, and for Vatican II, it's a little bit different. For Vatican II, it, it does relate to that in the sense that you had people say, oh, the church teaching is too rigid. These things are, are too cruel. This is outdated. Right. We have to get with the times. So outside the church, you had people saying, oh, we're in a modern era. We need, women need the right to choose whether or not they abort their babies, all these things, oh, the sex revolution. We should be able to do whatever we want with our bodies, sleep with whoever we want, take as many contraceptives as we want. All that stuff was going on out there. And then in the church realm of things, you had, oh, we're too cruel to the Protestants and we need to be more accepting and welcoming and inclusive. Fast forward to now, we see how, where those things led to. Um, But you had this sympathy card that was being played by these older generations trying to appease what culture was demanding, what secularism was demanding, what... Uh, people who were making accusations of them being too cruel were demanding. They tried to compromise with it, flirt with it and accommodate it. And instead what ended up happening was they lost it. They Mm -hmm. lost it because, and Michael Knowles talks about this a lot. I love him. And he's very devout Catholic um, (laughs) that freedom is not the ability to do whatever we want, but the right to do what we ought. So there's always that tension point when it comes to, both faith life, government life, all that, where there are certain things that are black and white. This is not permissible, not allowed. Can't let people murder, can't let people steal. And then there's a bunch of areas where it's like, well, there's some give and take here. We have seatbelt laws. Is that necessary? And it's not a moral wrong if you're not wearing a seatbelt. How much regulation from the government is appropriate? There's always these tension points to be had. Uh, But unfortunately, what happened both in our culture and in things like Vatican II there was an attempt to 
accommodate far too much to the point where we lost what we were. So in yeah. all of our efforts to try and cater to what we wanted to convert, we lost who we were. Yeah. And you see that continually happening more and more today, you know, and yeah. I saw that as a, I would share that with my parishes all the time as a parish consultant. I was like, man, so many of you guys want to try to become that Protestant church down the street that you think is taking all the young people mm-hmm. and you don't do that well. And then you have young people who want the tradition and orthodoxy of the church. And in trying to do the first, you know, the former, well, you do the latter really poorly as well. So now yeah. you're just bad at both. You know, it's like, why yeah, I mean, I tell people all the time, like, if you want, if you want a parish to be loaded with young people, get more traditional. Yeah. <laughs> be, be, more. be, and I, and I, and I hesitate when I say be yeah, more man. conservative. I hate that that's even a thing in the Catholic church because to be Catholic is to be a conservative. But if right. you were just more Catholic, they'd all come running back. Yeah. It's the fact that they're, <laughs> oh my gosh, if, yeah, if the parish, doesn't look much different than the concert going down, the, going on down the street at Ferdix. Well, why the heck am I going to do all this kneeling, standing up, singing these old yeah, songs? You don't that, have free coffee. I'm just going to go jam yeah. out over here at this glamorized Bible study. That's right. Well, I mean, yeah. If they don't understand what church is, what the Sabbath day is, what are we supposed to be doing on Sunday? If they don't understand what is the mass, why do we do it? Why do we get on our knees and receive this piece of bread that isn't actually bread after it's consecrated? Like, why? If they don't know that, why are they going to go through all those troubles? That's yeah. why my parents left, because they didn't understand it. My father, I, I've talked to them so much now because they're, they're, they are anti-Catholic. I said I talk to them so much now. Let me clarify that. I've always talked to my parents. I have a wonderful <laughs> relationship with my parents. I talk to them so much more now about faith specifically because I'm Catholic and they're Protestant. Uh, right. But I remember talking to my dad. I was like, Dad, when I was younger, you left. You gave me your reasons for a 12-year-old to understand. Now I'm 23. Why did you leave the church? Tell me your theological reasons why. And one of the things that he actually said to me was like, was like well, the Catholic church changed a lot. It's not the same that it was when I first was growing up in it because my parents were born in Cuba. So they grew up in the Catholic church a little bit there. And then they grew up in a different kind of Catholic church in the United States here before the Vatican II implementation started. Oh yeah. And he actually mentioned that it was, he was like, it was very confusing because the teaching started like becoming all blurred things where it didn't seem like it was the same church anymore. Mm -hmm. And it was, it felt like we were going through the motions and didn't know why we were doing these things that we were doing. But they went to yeah. the Baptist church in a town over, and that guy was opening the Bible and reading it and teaching from it. So it didn't really matter that it was bad theology. The guy was opening the Bible and teaching from it, and they were like, well, that's more than the fluff homily that we're getting at, <laughs> at Mass, and it doesn't include all the oh, – I'm, I'm, I'm speaking specifically from what they've told me, not me trying to like uh, make them look bad. They're – we don't have to do all this kneeling, standing up, singing, sitting back down. We didn't have to do any of that stuff. We just sat there and we learned the Bible. If all that Sunday is, is a Bible study. Okay, fine. I, I, I guess I can give you a little more, uh, sub, a little more uh, credence to your argument. But if you were to understand what the mass is, what and why we do what we do as Catholics, you would never leave. You'd never leave. Right. And unfortunately... In our efforts to convert so many Protestants, we, we actually made a lot made of, more of them. Yeah, made, <laughs> yep. made a ton. <laughs> yeah, dude, it's so sad that the church itself made it so hard to like for retention. 
mm-hmm. it's, it's really crazy. And it's kind of sad to me now. Cause like, I think a lot of times whenever there's like a crackdown from Pope Francis, like on the trads, um, you know, on the, on the Latin mass, um, I immediately like Taylor Marshall. I, that's when I like listen to his podcast. Typically mm-hmm. it's like if something big popped up, cause I'm like, I know he's going to be worked up. And so I'll listen to him then. I don't listen to him like regularly, but when there's big trad news, I'll go to him. Yeah. Um, but what's sad to me is that you would think that a lot of people who lived through the sixties and seventies would kind of be like relaxing us through this time, you mm-hmm. know, of like, yeah, they're cracking down on orthodoxy. Like we went through that, you know, at a level that was a thousand times what the trads are experiencing now, mm-hmm. you know, when like they literally, everybody was doing it. And then they were like, nobody do it anymore. Yep. You know? And not only that, but I mean, think of like the worst Novus Ordo parishes that you've ever been to, like the least Orthodox. That's what a lot of them turned into like overnight. Oh yeah. You know, these priests that were in the seminary in the sixties and seventies, like they went and, and I mean, they, it, it was like just a free for all. Like, they pounced. Like, they used mm-hmm. Eucharistic prayers and stuff like that were just freestyled, you know? And we see some of those, we see like glimpses of those today and people mm-hmm. are appalled. It's like, dude, this is nothing compared to the sixties. And it's the same thing, dude. I think that parallels how frustrated I get with the black community Mm. Where I'm like, why don't why don't Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton and some of these like, you know, Maxine Waters who have been around for so long. Why don't you come and say, hey, guys, like this isn't that bad. Mm-hmm. You know, like I know the George Floyd, I know that like the situation, the videos you're seeing, like they're very upsetting. Um, but like we used to get like lynched and nobody cared. Mm. you know, like and it's not that we shouldn't like keep fighting for justice or whatever they think that looks like. I'm not saying they should abandon everything that they believe, even though I think they're wrong about a lot of things. But yeah. I'm like, how do these elder black people not come and say, are you guys joking? Mm-hmm. You know, how do they not look mm-hmm. at like a Nicole Hannah Jones or, you know, the BLM leaders and say, is this a, like, is this a, is this a facade? Like, are you guys actually kidding? Like LeBron James, like, how is he not rebuked constantly yep. for saying that he faces racism? He goes through all this stuff. Like Martin Luther King was mur- Martin Luther King was murdered. Malcolm X was murdered, you know, like, and people just yeah. like neglect that. Like LeBron James faces no threats to his life. He gets a little nice, like the most cush, you know, great life that would only be possible here in the United States of America while making tons of money from, you know, the abusing, horrific communist government in China. And like nobody cares. They don't say anything about it. They just let it completely go. And I'm like, how do these older I'm like, where are the older Catholics and the older black people, you know, Mm -hmm. in their own organ, like in their own cultures to actually guide us through some of this madness and be like, we've been through worse times before. Like, we'll survive this. You know, like this is not as bad as what your ancestors faced. You mm-hmm. actually need to be doing more. You need to be entering into life more, you know, pursuing excellence in everything that you do, taking yeah. over leadership positions and fighting to, to make the changes you want to see. Mm-hmm. But we don't see that. Instead, everybody's just silent. Either you don't see them at all, because I don't even know who to go to. Like, who is the who is that? Who is that person in either camp? Mm-hmm. You know, other than, I mean, I know in the black camp more than I do in the Catholic one. You know, I know Larry Elder, Thomas Soul. Like, I know who to go to in some of the older yeah. Catholic uh, or black conservatives. But I don't know who that is in the Catholic church to go to and be yeah. like, how did you survive this and what happened? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, except for, I guess you could say like Cardinal Burke is some of these like OG, you know, Cardinal yeah. Sarad, like some of these guys who have been around a little bit, but in the American Catholic, like popular speakers and stuff like, I'm like, where, where are the people that guide us through these times? Yeah. And they're always silent whenever things get, get dicey. Yeah. And I, I don't know, like there's a multitude of reasons for, for why that is the case too, because some of it is lack of courage. Some of it is cognitive dissonance. Some of it is just yeah. pure laziness that you, or some of it is you don't care enough. I mean, there's, there's all these different reasons why you wouldn't want to look out for those coming next and tell them like, Hey, listen, this is what I yeah. went through. Here's how to avoid these mistakes. Here's why what you're going through doesn't even compare to what we went through. Here's the, all the opportunities that you have 
that nobody else before you had to whatever, live a better life, affect greater change in the church, restore tradition, whatever it might be. And it's disappointing to me because especially in the church, like this is about our eternity. This is about, this is about the King of the universe and how we are exercising our faith in his church until he comes back. This stuff is, this is, this is the most essential importance here. Right. <laughs> Please do us the favor and don't let us have to be the only ones like our age trying to figure it out for ourselves, which yeah. is fine. We should be searching, seeking, but those who came before us, like, Hey, put the effort in here to like, yeah, don't be afraid to show help us. Out. Right. 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 <laughs> help us out. Make, like lead us to, I mean, my gosh, Jesus did it with 12 grown men, discipled right. them. And his Absolutely. entire ministry on the earth, and they discipled after, and they discipled after, and they discipled after to have what we have today as the, as the Catholic Church. It wouldn't have happened if those who came before weren't discipling and being honest about mistakes, being honest about what they did right, and being honest about things that they needed to correct. If you don't have that, which takes us to the political side of things, if you have a for some of them, they lie. For some of them, they're just unfortunately not that bright. Um, if if you don't have that willingness to admit, hey, look, the obstacles that stood in the way for people that had dark skin in this era don't exist today. Your obstacle is actually in your own head. You can actually be a LeBron James if you're good enough at basketball. You can actually do it. Nobody's right. going to stop you because yep. they pick up a, a, a what I call like the Lowe's paint strips and be like, nope, sorry, too dark. You can't. No, that doesn't exist anymore. You need to work, study, hustle, and you can get there. And if you don't, if you're telling people their entire life, oh no, you're oppressed because of this reason, you're oppressed because of that reason, there's actual oppression. And when that happens, we should call it out, we should point it out, we should fight for justice. But when it's not there and you've convinced an entire generation, be it oppressed because of skin color, oppressed because of their gender, oppressed because of uh, the financial status of their parents, whatever the reason might be, you tell them they're oppressed because of that. When they're not, you have just completely stifled that person's willingness to try. And and I guess belief in oneself, you could call it, and not in the sense of like oh, uh, the self-love cult that we're surrounded by today, but that you have the potential to be better, the potential to do more, the potential to succeed at a Mm -hmm. level greater than what they're telling you that you can. You're robbing an entire generation of people in their intersectionality ladder, wherever you might fall on the oppressive scale of their ability to succeed and live out God's calling for their life because you've convinced them that there's some kind of obstacle in their minds that's standing in their way. And it's, it's theft. It's theft of, of, of thousands, millions of people's destinies and theft of God's calling on their lives uh, because you are choosing to lie to them or uh, are deceiving them unknowingly that there's these obstructions that aren't actually there. Yeah, man. It's so sad to see. And I think you hit, you hit it right. Exactly. Uh, you know what I was looking for, what I think and, and totally agree with. Um, but you said something that I think is really interesting. You sparked an interesting question in my mind talking about the fact that some people are dumb and some people are, are liars, right? Mm-hmm. Um, especially people who fall into leftism, I would say, are, yep. are really a combination of those two things. Yes. Uh, but, you know, I was, I've been watching this. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it. There's this, and you might, maybe you just don't watch Netflix at all, which I think a lot of people take a hard stance against that. I don't. <laughs> um, and I know that's the thing for a lot of people, but my grandparents have a, a subscription, so I use theirs, but 
uh, I actually haven't watched Netflix in probably a year. And I was like mm. randomly looking one day, Emily had gone home uh, for the night. And I was like, man, I want to watch a little bit of TV. What should I watch? And I found this like how to be a tyrant uh, series on there. And they highlight like a different tyrant throughout history. Interesting. Uh, Hitler, Stalin, like all these different like big uh, Saddam Hussein. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm like halfway through, but I was watching the Stalin one. They talked about like the, the terminology that comes up. Ben Shapiro talks about it all the time the term useful idiots and like yes. that it kind of came out of the Stalin regime, mm-hmm. um, that term. And what, is, what do you think is the ratio, especially when you talk about people in politics and like mm. the hard left Democrats, what do you think the ratio is from like liars to useful idiots in the, uh, in the democratic party, especially like the hard left Democrats? Yeah. So this, this one's uh, multifaceted because I give a lot less grace to those who are in positions of leadership, much like Christ, yeah. the people he was the harshest to, were the ones who for sure were in positions of leadership and were pre- presenting themselves as the wise ones, the teachers, the leaders. He was mm-hmm. the harshest to them because if you're going to put yourself in a position of leadership, you ought to know better. And if you don't know better, you ought to be making every effort to get to know better. And if yeah. you don't, you're a failure of a leader. And that's how he treated them. Brood of vipers, children of the devil. Like the, he did not hold yeah. the hypocrites. He did not hold back. Then there are those who are following the lead of these people. But then you have to factor in, did their worldview develop, the people who are in leadership, did that develop because of somebody who lied to them before they were around? Right. So you could have generations of people who are now in political office, and you'd be surprised how many politicians, when you look into their dad was so-and-so, or their mom was so-and-so, or (laughs) uncle or grandpa was connected in the political world, where they could have been indoctrinated to a certain thought pattern or a certain worldview and never actually had the opportunity to question it in any real sort of way outside of what they were formulated with by whoever came before them and taught them. Right. So you've got some of that. But then you have some people who are, I would, I would say, among the left, if I had to put a number on it, I'm going to say 80% are liars, and they know they're liars. And that might be even be more. And I'll tell you how. Somebody listens to me, well, you don't have any proof for that. Bernie Sanders, three houses, AOC owns a Tesla, Nancy Pelosi, wealthiest woman in Congress, her district is dirt poor. When you look at what these politicians espouse, Mm -hmm. and then you look at the way that they're living, it's in complete contradiction. The BLM, one of the BLM founders purchased her third home or a a home for over a million dollars, whatever it was. She's a communist. You're not supposed to do that if you're a communist. <laughs> right. yeah, so you look that. at the way they're living and it's polar opposite to what they're telling you that you should expect. They're a liar. So that's one of the best litmus tests to tell whether or not it's they're deceived themselves or whether or not they're a liar. So you know where those where I stand on those politicians. Um, <laughs> so you've, you've got those elements there. But then you have the people who listen to them. You've got the people who are like you and me that are scrolling yeah. through the social media every day that are trying to find purpose, meaning, love, value, and they're inundated with it from everywhere. And you've got people like us who are saying, listen, it's possible to be loved and valued, but this is what it looks like. And sometimes it'll come with suffering and it's not always going to be easy. That's true, but it's not an easy sell. Then you have the deceptive side that's saying, look, if we, you just gave all the power to us, if we just raised taxes to this amount, if we just said that healthcare was free, if it, whatever the thing might be, oh, we love, we care, we, we want to be, be more compassionate, we're inclusive, all these words that on their own could be good things. 
but are actually being used to sell a lie because it's a much easier sell. My goodness, if you tell somebody, look, if we just make healthcare free, if we uh, just suspend all student loan repayments, uh, if we raise taxes on the 1% to this rate, uh, if we let criminals out uh, sooner, things will get better. Things will get mm-hmm. better. It'll it'll be you look. You won't have to pay for your healthcare anymore. Uh, we won't have people rotting away in prison uh, who were over sentenced for their crimes. Uh, we'll actually have enough money to pay for whatever the services might be. Sounds great, but it is not realistic. And this is what Thomas Sowell talks about so much. He was a full blown Marxist. He'll tell you be like. <laughs> Yeah, the ideal would be that everybody gets a guaranteed basic income. Everybody can purchase what they need uh, to to each according to his, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. The Marxist ideal, yes, that would be awesome. But the reality is that that's an impossible aim to achieve because of the reality of what humanity is. As Christians, we understand that sin influences that. We understand that corruption influences that, and that's why those things are impossible to achieve. Yeah. But to somebody who's overwhelmed with everything that's on their phone, they can search up all these different accounts that are uh, a be true to yourself, love yourself, all these different <laughs> yeah. themes that all sound great. Yeah. yeah, sound great, super easy to accept, very comfortable, but don't actually deliver worthwhile or fruitful results. That's what I think you have among more of among the masses that are just yeah. trying to find their way but they've got leaders who are intentionally manipulating, lying to them, living double lives. And unfortunately, some of the leaders were deceived before by someone else who was lying to them. Right. And now you've got them removed from actually being able to say, oh, you're the original liar. No, no, no. Yeah. Ultimately, the original liar is the devil. But you know what I mean? Uh, you you might have been taught by dad or grandpa or professor in yeah. your college. And now you don't even... but. The people like AOC, Bernie Sanders, Nancy Pelosi, uh, the BLM founder, Joe Biden, they're telling you one thing and they're explicitly living another. You can't be that dumb, especially not, <laughs> especially not when you're that successful in the world of politics. Yeah. You, you are not that dumb. Joe Biden might be now because he's cognitively slipping. Yeah, I was going to say, soul, <laughs> but he might have switched. Yeah. For the rest, you, you're switched. not that dumb. You're yeah. lying. Yeah. That's deep, man. Yeah. And so many of them, I think were taught to lie, you know, cause I think it's mm-hmm. easy to think that maybe they were deceived before, but many of them were like taught. Yeah. And not, and not deceived to like actually believing in what they're doing is true, but they saw grandpa make a ton of money, mm-hmm. you know, in politics. And it's like, mm-hmm. this is how you do it. You know? And I think that the AOCs of the world get trained by the Bernie Sanders and the Nancy Pelosi's of the world to be like, this Absolutely. is how you do it. It's how you make a career and make tens of millions of dollars in politics, which is pretty wild to think about, but mm-hmm. That's great, man. And so obviously, you know, a ton of stuff. I don't know. Were you a, were you like a political science uh, guy? I actually studied business finance. I started law and policy, Wow. but I remember the final moment that I was like, changed my mind was actually met Eric Bowling. He used to be a personality on Fox news. And I ran into him at dinner one time in New Jersey. And I told him about what I was studying, whatever. And he was like, you know, you don't have to study politics to be in politics. I'm like, I know I've been gathering that. Like you don't have to study the thing and get a degree. There's by the way, most college degrees are completely useless. You don't need them. Uh, that's something that our culture is and our society has not fully realized yet, <laughs> yeah. but will eventually. Most of college is a scam. You don't need a degree for most of the things that you're going to school it's for. Very expensive scam. Yeah, very expensive scam yeah. that you're stuck with that debt for the rest of your life. But yeah, it's loving and compassionate for you. But uh, I, he told me that, and I was like, you know what? You're right. Like I don't need to be studying this to know 
politics. Like, so he was like, study something else, study journalism, study business, whatever. And, and the following year I did, I switched to business finance. Mm. Um, it's paid for now by Liberty because I work for them, which is great. Uh, but I was like, I'm not going to study all this time in politics. I love it so much that I'm already doing that on my own. I'm not going to pay somebody to help me do that. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of stuff you're learning yeah. on your own. And uh-huh. so what do you do now? Like, how do you stay up to date? Like, what is your, what has been your learning process? I guess. Are you a big, like avid book reader? Obviously you, you listen to Michael Knowles on, at yeah. least on occasion. Like what, what's mm-hmm. kind of your, your typical process for staying up to date with things? Reading is the biggest thing. I'll be the first one to admit I should be reading more. Uh, yeah. Your stories on Instagram convict me all the time because you'll post like, did you work <laughs> out today? Good. And I'm like, no, no, <laughs> did I didn't. You read? No. Did you finish your book in January? No, no, I didn't. I'm going to so finish. Funny but I didn't make it on time. But like those That's kinds amazing. of things that I'm, I'm first to admit, I'm like, You're I need welcome. to be doing a better job. But yes. Thank you. Keep doing it. And <laughs> everybody listening to this, like use those things as accountability. It's good. It is very yeah. good. Um, there should be no reason why you can't, but yes, reading is a big one for me. Actually homeschooling was, was the most formative time in those high school years because I had so much time to read and study that all these things that might have been issues I questioned, I started getting answers to those questions, like foundations of our country, the structure of our government. I had a civics course in eighth grade, I remember, which I was still in the public school. That was the best government course I'd ever taken in all of public school was in my eighth grade civics class. Um, but other than that, I can't really remember a time that public school was teaching me these things, um, not to any sufficient extent. But in home, when I was homeschooled, I remember I had a, a it's not a formal law class because it's not a college, but we had an entire like American history course where we were studying some Supreme court cases of like pivotal moments in constitutional history that changed precedents that were set for the establishment clause or the right to privacy, all these different things. Um, And that's kind of how that was a really formative year, but yes, above all else is reading. Like if you're not reading, you're, you're growing dumber by the day. You have to, have to, have to read. You'd be amazed how many books you can actually read. If you did one a month, like you had, like you're challenging everybody to do, that's 12 books in a year. That's a lot more information than most people realize. But in my day to day, my job is literally at a political organization. So I, I, primary responsibility is actually monitoring their social media. It's one of the reasons why my posts on my personal are much further in between because I'm always focusing energy on what I'm being paid to do. (laughs) So I don't know if it's as much on mine, but I, that helps me too. Cause I'm like every day I'm reading what's going on in politics. I'm scrolling through the trends on Twitter. Now I also use Getter a lot too. Like what is it that's going on in the cultural political world? I'll listen to, if you haven't done this, I recommend this for everybody. A lot of people were paying attention to to the Supreme Court now with Dobbs v. Jackson for the abortion uh, case that could potentially overturn Roe v. Wade. People were listening when uh, they were discussing uh, Joe Biden's tyrant uh, vaccine mandate. (laughs) Um, And if you haven't done it, listen to those oral arguments to hear the lawyers explaining wrong as they may be in the case of the uh, pro mandate side uh, for the Supreme Court case. it's fascinating. And you learn so much hearing them make their legal arguments based on our existing law and regulation. Yeah. You can learn so much about our political system just by going through and listening to the lawyers' different cases. Uh, and you, you would be amazed how quickly you're able to pick up on new information, things you didn't know before, and how quickly you're going to start to understand government and politics uh, at a much quicker pace. Absolutely. 
Yeah, man. I mean, reading reading is obviously monumental in my life. That's why I advertise it, you know, or, or promote yeah. it so often. Um, because I, I truly do. I think those are the three big things, you know, like my days where I pray, read and work out are like, you know, easily the best days of my life, you know, on like, oh, a, yeah. you know, day to day level, obviously not saying like oh, yeah. my top five days ever, but um, yeah, it's just, it's amazing. And it's amazing how much you can read in a year when you actually just make it like a daily part of your life, even if it's mm-hmm. just a little bit, I, mm-hmm. I was super sold on it by Matthew Kelly, actually, when I was in college and he pointed out exactly what you're saying, you know, if you just read one book a month, which if you're talking about like a 200 page, even a 300 page book, well, let's say 200 pages, you know, you divide that by 30, it's like what, like six to eight pages a day, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. on average. Um, and if you can just do that, which typically would take people like 15 minutes, and then you did 12 books, it's like over over 10 years, like that's 120 books. Like how much better yeah. would your life be? Especially in what we try to promote Seeking Excellence. I'm like, if you read, you know, 10 financial yes. books and 10 politics, like political books and 10, uh, you know, books to help you to develop better habits and, and whatever, and, and 20 spiritual, you know, Catholic, mm-hmm. great Catholic reads, like how much better of a person would you be in 10 years versus who you are today? Tremendously, tremendously. You know? And it goes back to like, like we were talking about earlier about when I, my conversion, part of the conversion, the part that convinced me to convert was the tradition, all the stuff that I had ignored. Yeah. Books are it, it, to a much lesser extent, like a, the sacred tradition of the church where you're learning yeah. from people who came before you, from people who have studied these things longer than you have. And they've put it in this small little packet for you to just hear Here's all the studying I did over 25 years. Here's a crash course in 200 pages. Yeah. That's an invaluable resource. When you look at some of the greatest conservative minds and the greatest theological minds, more importantly, avid readers, mm-hmm. you think of St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, you, politically, you think of somebody like Thomas Sowell. He was dirt poor. And he'd say, I've heard him tell the story. I, I can't remember if it was somebody in his family or a neighbor of his gave him a library card. And yeah. he said, that yeah. was my ticket to freedom. As soon as I started to read, all bets were off. Yep, he could now take in <laughs> yeah. all this information, teach himself whatever he wanted. Yeah. He ended up becoming a college professor, but there's no way he would have ever made it to college ever until he got that library card and the world of reading opened up endless possibilities for the, for the man. And thank God, because he's one of the most brilliant economic minds of our time. Absolutely. Yeah, dude, it's amazing. It's a great, it's credible. It's really incredible how important it is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so hopefully everybody be inspired to finish their February book this month. You included. Yes, <laughs> I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Love to hear it, man. <laughs> awesome, bro. Well, thank you so much for for taking the time to talk today, man. It's been great getting to share a little bit of your story. Really, yeah, really love listening to your story, and then uh, really appreciate you sharing so many thoughts and opinions on different things. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm happy to come on anytime. I loved our conversation. Great. Yeah. We'll definitely have you back sometime, man. So awesome, man. And and I just want to encourage everybody out there. Obviously every, every episode, we want to encourage you to fight hard to strive to be your best to seek for excellence in every area of your life. That includes obviously some serious prayer reading and exercise and uh, to really just take ownership of everything and to be more intentional with your life. But I think what we really highlighted at the end here is the intention or the importance of being intentional of, and becoming a lifelong learner. Mm-hmm. And taking ownership of that education, that ongoing education and continuous learning as you grow up. You never, you never graduate from needing to learn more. You never graduate from, you know, be seeking saint, striving for sainthood, which requires oftentimes us to learn new things and to absorb all this wisdom from the saints and the church's tradition. So we want to encourage you guys to do that. And uh, just thank you so much for listening to this episode today. If you really enjoyed it, we encourage you to share it with somebody um, who you think might value or benefit from it as well. 
And uh, know of our prayers for you. Continue to fight hard to be your best. God bless.